Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. Hi, my name is Vineet Thakur. Deepak Nair teaches at the National University of Singapore and he recently published an article in the European Journal of International Relations which was joint winner of the EISA's Best Article Prize for 2020. Titled Saving Face in Diplomacy, a Political Sociology of Face-to-Face -face Interactions in the ASEAN, the article rejects both essentialist as well as generic readings of ASEAN's diplomacy and presents a fascinating microsociological account of face-saving practices. And to discuss this, today we are in conversation with Deepak Nair. Welcome, Deepak, to our first EISA podcast, and officially congratulations on winning, or rather co-winning, um, the Best Article Award for European Journal of International Relations. Before we talk about uh, the article and, and the arguments we make there in the piece, um, could you please tell us a bit about your background, uh, how you came to work on microsociological practices in international relations? Um, and and sort of on a bit of a personal note, because, you know, both of us come from India, I was also sort of curious to know, how did you come to work on Southeast Asia as a region? Uh, thanks once again. It's an incredible honor to have received this uh, award and very glad to be in the company of Ida, whose work I admire very much as well. Uh, so I think there are two parts to your question. One is a theoretical concern. How did I end up being interested in what's considered as microsociological IR? Uh, micro-political IR more broadly. And the other part is, how did I get interested in Southeast Asia? And I think you rightly pointed out, anyone who studied in India had higher education in India. We barely study Southeast Asia in any detail or with any rigor. And um, and yes, yeah, so this has a particularly idiosyncratic, I've had a particularly atypical idiosyncratic journey in terms of taking an interest in this region. But the first part about uh, IR and Uh, microsociological IR in particular, I, th I think the uh, very obvious uh, starting point there is the fact that once you, for in, at least in my case, was a certain um, uh, dissatisfaction with the level of abstraction one finds in IR in terms of its concepts, its frameworks, its theories. Uh, and, uh, and I suppose, um, uh, you know, there was, in terms of my own interests, I think the micro sensibility predated my journey in, in, in my professional career in academia. And so I, th I suppose I must have always asked this question, if you really enjoy great literature and great cinema, for example, what's great about them is that you find these extraordinarily rich characters, intimate stories that are embedded in these sweeping historical moments, uh, the capacity to tack between the small and the large effortlessly. And why is it that the scholarship that I was reading wasn't able to provide me with that sort of an account? Uh, so I suppose... Uh, there was the, the interest and the sensibility to go micro was certainly in large part a reaction to the scale of abstraction 
the structuralism, the interest in grand systemic sort of thinking that that IR in fact prides itself on, if I may say so. And uh, so therefore the interest in, um, you know, in how people think, they act, what they say, what they do, and how that's embedded in the flow of momentary lived experience. Uh, and the interest in small units of an analysis like everyday practices, interactions, emotions, affect, embodiment. I suppose these are the things that naturally became uh, the sort of things that attracted my attention. Uh, and uh, I suppose in this, I was also, I think I profited from the fact that there, th these discussions have been in fact going on in Aya, but for the most part in the margins. I think feminist scholars in particular uh, and uh, some sociologists, critical IR scholars. But I think these have now been brought f much more to the, I wouldn't say mainstream discussion, but they've been foregrounded, especially with the turn to practice theory in IR, the interest in an explosion, I'd say, of political, sociological inspired work in IR as well. Um, so I suppose that's not sure, it's sort of a broad answer as to why I've taken an interest in, in the micro. And, and of course, I, have, I think there are very compelling reasons why we must pay attention to the microsociological, not only does it help us to see the, uh, the sort of reveal the social structures in, in empirical, the empirical reality of social structures, right? That's one to begin with, but also the fact that the moment you start studying the everyday, the ordinary, the banal, uh, you begin to realize that human action is cannot be adequately explained by rational actor models, by norm-based models, because what we see is, in fact, everyday conduct, banal conduct being governed by tacit, taken for granted, practical knowledge, corporeal knowledge. And the moment you do that, habits, routines, right, unreflexive stuff, and the moment you do that, you know, that conceptualization of human action has knock-on effects for how you understand how society hangs together, how society changes, how power works, uh, how inequality and domination is produced and reproduced, and so on. So anyway, so this is something that uh, really interests, my, uh, sort of, really appeals to me. And and what I've done in my work so far has been to has been to sort of focus on the if the sources and effects of say everyday practices, practices of face saving, for example, in this article, but in other pieces, understand the the the, the form and effects of the structure of particular kinds of face-to-face inter -face interactions or interactions in general, like sociable interactions, uh, and so on and so forth. As for Southeast Asia, I think uh, the story there is, I think it was atypical because usually what happens is, uh, you know, you start your dissertation or you, so for many scholars that the entry into a region or to area studies involves either a, a trip to a country, right? When you're in school or you're in, in graduate school later. Uh, and, and of course it begins with a country. So in my case, it was not with a country. I never came to do fieldwork or came for a, a voluntary experience in, in Indonesia or in, or in Myanmar, right? Uh, uh, what, what did happen was that after my uh, master's degree, I was part of I was part of the world of think tanks, and because of my background in international relations, I was able to secure a research position here in Singapore uh, and uh, uh, enter the world of AS the cottage industry of ASEAN think tanks 
or ASEAN theme think tanks. And very soon, and of course, that itself is very sociologically telling that, you know, for, for someone who studies ASEAN, that with very little understanding of Southeast Asia, almost 15 years back, I could actually become, I was, I could be a participant in, in this particular field because of my knowledge of international relations theory. Very abstract, very remote, not requiring sort of area expertise at all. Uh, and I soon realized that I was more of, I was far less an analyst of ASEAN as much as someone who was complicit in producing and reproducing the politics of ASEAN through ASEAN-themed workshops, seminars, policy briefs, and, and whatnot. Uh, so I think that, uh, thankfully, I suppose at some point I realized that the, the, the tension there in terms of what I was doing. And, and my, so ASEAN has been my entry point to understand Southeast Asia. But the interesting thing there, I suppose, is that uh, learning and understanding more deeply about Southeast Asia involved or went hand in hand with defamiliarizing, historicizing, and even critiquing ASEAN and particularizing it, realizing through an immersion in Southeast Asian international history and in Southeast Asian politics more broadly about how um, uh, the, the very partisans and historically specific nature of this diplomatic project in the long arc of Southeast Asian international history and politics and the sort of politics it produces and reproduces, but which the cottage industry in ASEAN would, you know, for them, the ultimate discursive accomplishment is to turn metonymy into reality, which is ASEAN is the region, ASEAN is Southeast Asia, but it turns out that that itself is an effect that's desired by particular political interests. Anyway, so the point being that I had this sort of very atypical immersion in an entry point to study Southeast Asian international history and politics, and 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 um, and yeah, this it, it's been strange, and I still wrestle with the legacies of of this particular journey. It's not been easy, I suppose. Uh, thank you very much, Deepak, for that sort of fantastic overview of you know. Um, your biographical as well as sort of theoretical inclinations, uh, but also I think it's it'd be very clear to our listeners that you know uh, you work at the interstices of this sort of abstract theory, micro sociological practices, and the policy world, uh, and this is sort of a fascinating world to sort of reveal, um, and that in a way sort of uh, allows us to go to a next question, which is uh, how would you explain the piece? Uh, and its main arguments uh, to an IR audience, uh, especially those who may not be experts in your area? Sure. Uh, I suppose uh, it's worth restating what is the core question that I explore in this study. And uh, I, I should also add, it, it, it's a somewhat unambitious question, but the answer to which I suspect ha has sort of larger stakes for the study of culture, practice, and power. So the question is simply this. Uh, what is ASEAN's culture, right? Uh, and uh, and of course, I mean, to those who are not familiar, ASEAN is this particular, it stands for the, it's an acronym for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is this diplomatic project that emerged during the heyday of the Cold War in uh, Southeast Asia, specifically island Southeast Asia alongside Thailand. Uh, and so, yeah, so what is the culture of this diplomatic project, which is uh, rather intriguingly endured for a very long time and has, you know, arouses either uh, 
odd celebration or for that matter, very bitter criticism. No one's quite sure. And, and so the, the notion about Asana is that it's this really bogus, ersatz, imitation community on the one hand, uh, or on the other hand, you have those who have argued that no, what the, the sort of dialogic encounters that happen through ASEAN's diplomacy actually have concrete effects for peace and stability in Southeast Asia. And in fact, to the extent that ASEAN created diplomatic arrangements in the post-Cold War period, like the ASEAN Regional Forum and East Asia Summit, the, the debate shifted to whether the ASEAN model, ASEAN's culture of doing diplomacy could foster peace on a wider Asia-Pacific scale. Uh, so existing answers to the question of ASEAN's culture, what is ASEAN's culture, better known by this moniker, the ASEAN way, the ASEAN style, uh, many scholars have spoken of, uh, they provide a list of representations in terms of a number of principles, in terms of the norms of the ASEAN way. I su su uh, suppose many of you are familiar with two of them in particular, very notorious. One is the principle or the norm of non-interference in the internal affairs of member states. And the other is the norm of consensus-based decision-making. And there are other sort of cluster of ideas that come together in this, uh, in, in this bag, which include uh, informal diplomacy, uh, organizational minimalism, non-use of force, and whatnot. And there's been this, uh, the way in which they've studied culture, it, they've tried to act trace the origins of these ASEAN norms to the general norms of the United Nations Charter, as well as, say, for some scholars, even Bandung. Um, but at the same time, they will combine these, quote-unquote, Western concept with what some may call as Eastern attitudes, traditional culture, indigenous ways of finding consensus, uh, Musyavara and Mufakat and, you know, some would argue that it goes down to Javanese village culture and so on. So it's the indigenous roots that give it, give ASEAN this ineffaceable, irreducible authenticity, as it were. Uh, so anyway, so during my fieldwork, I, I realized that more than anything, the actual doing, the performance of ASEAN's diplomacy in everyday routinized terms seemed to involve this really heightened concern for face, this concern to protect uh, and make sure that basically member states would not be embarrassed. And this concern for face and specifically for saving face and not embarrassing member states uh, is sort of often very routine, very banal, uh, and it's institutionalized. And I can share more details about the ways in this happen. it happens at meetings, the very infrastructure of interactions itself. So the very fact that if you, you know, want to have a meeting on something that is put, has the potential to arouse any contention, you call it an informal meeting. You 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 change the uh, basically use non-controversial covers. So an informal meeting, special meetings, retreats. You try as much as you can to not formalize conflict on the front stage of diplomacy with your place cards, your country name cards, and microphones, and so on. And of course, your uh, and your flags behind you. And uh, this includes not just the, so the, the infrastructure of interactions itself, the way in which meetings are recognized, but also uh, you know, things like your textual documents, the fact that uh, when there are disagreements among member states, even confidential reports or the record of that meeting will not state which countries disagree with whom. You know, so the secretary staff learn something, learn this on the job, that you don't single out countries, you don't mention them, you don't criticize them, you don't embarrass them. Um, anyway, so, so 
it's it came so it was very clear to me during my field work that this concern for face seems to pervade the ASEAN way of doing things. So yes, ASEAN doesn't ASEAN's diplomats are always finding consensus, but when they're trying to find consensus, they're doing it with concerns for face. They're doing it in a they, they seek to find consensus with making sure that no one gets embarrassed. I can give you concrete examples of it later as well. They do intervene in the affairs of one another, but once when they intervene, they make sure they 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 do so while saving face. You know, so so anyway, so the, it seemed to me that the argument that was emerging from my field work was that you know, to put it very simply, ASEAN's culture is one of saving face. But the very fact that I could to to say that to to articulate that statement, uh, one would require scare quotes, shadow quotes, right? A whole number of caveats, and for very good reason because uh, ASEAN's leaders, their diplomats, their statesmen, their uh, foreign ministers, they've you know, they've not only been some of the keenest cold warriors of the late 20th century from capitalist Southeast Asia, they've also been formidable culture warriors who have been at the forefront of official cultural discourses trying to articulate Asian cultural difference. And the I think the high watermark of this cultural discourse was the Asian values debate. So people like the number of prominent ASEAN figures uh, who have been very much at the forefront of articulating this discourse in Asian difference. And, and so therefore, this, the study of ASEAN's culture is part and parcel of this wider discussion of Asian cultural difference. And this cultural discourse of the Asian way, the ASEAN way, of face is very important, conflict will break out when, uh, when face is lost, and where face comes from, from Asian values, from, uh, from, uh, from traditional village society and whatnot. This, this entire cultural discourse is marked by the very familiar ills of culturalism itself, which call us to use shudder quotes and scare quotes, uh, essentialism, right, uh, primordialism, uh, and of course Orientalism as well. So anyway, so to just so to come to your to answer your question, this article is an attempt to basically provide a non-essentialist account of what face and practices of face-saving is doing in ASEAN's diplomacy, both in terms of the sources of face-saving, but also the effects of face-saving in terms of avoiding conflict, fostering in-group cohesion, and also reproducing the basic mechanism through which ASEAN's deeply conservative politics is produced and reproduced, uh, and in fact, continues to be reproduced over the decades. Uh, thank you, Deepak, again. I'll, I'll come to the point about essentialism that you make. Uh, but before that, I also was sort of, you know, uh, fascinated by by your fieldwork as such. I mean, you know, the rich work you've done has been made possible by, if I'm not wrong, 13 months of immersive fieldwork. That's a long period. Uh, but also I think what, what is uh, really interesting about the piece is that you're um, – that there's, you know, you quite frankly acknowledge, uh, you know, uh, your own, like how your own background helped with access to these people and uh, diplomacy, you know, anyone working on diplomacy knows that fieldwork involves sort of uh, immersing yourself in these elite networks and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, I wanted to sort of gen generally throw at you a question about your methodology in terms of, uh, uh, you know, for our um, listeners, uh what can you say about, you know, the relevance of the kind of methodology that you followed? And it's it's rigorous, 13 months. Uh, but also if you could reflect a bit on the, how much of the research depends on the exceptionality of the researcher as such. Uh, 
I suppose this uh, goes with the methodology itself, isn't it? Uh, where uh, your you you know things that are not in your control, the fixed aspects of your personal front, your gender, your race, or ethnic slash ethnicity, have a bearing on the kind of access that you can uh, enjoy in a field. Uh, so yes, uh, so I guess in some respects, um, uh, I suppose. You know, I, but it's interesting, you know, Vineet, when you talk about that, because my my major problem, uh, I I spent close to seven months over failed access negotiations because regardless of all these things, I was not a citizen of one of the ASEAN member states. So I had to sort of invent all sorts of other proxy ways of making the case that, hey, I potentially belong to your club of insiders, you know. Uh, and none of them worked eventually. Uh, so So on the one hand, I did not enjoy all the attributes that could have given me sort of pristine access, as it were, and actually conduct participant observation by being a member of a, a foreign ministry delegation in, in ASEAN. But on the other hand, there were other things that did work for me. And once those are the things I realized during fieldwork, which was that if you were, you know, the, that the fact that I could always be mistaken for being, you know, a, a, a South, you know a Singaporean or Malaysian or Malay or Indian from you know, plural society or a colonial plural society origins, the, the fact that I could always fit in in one way or the other based on how others interpreted and perceived me, was something that did work to my advantage. But whether this is exceptional, I think, if I may just sort of, if that's the word you're asking, is this something that, does this model of fieldwork travel? Is that really the question that you're getting at? Well, I would say that this particular strategy of immersion where the prospects of participant observation in the traditional anthropological sense were almost entirely closed off because of the secrecy of these meetings, uh, the, the model that I use was, in fact, inspired by other anthropologists studying up uh, 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 elites. And, uh, in fact, the work that really inspired me a great deal was the work by Hugh Gustafson and his uh, fieldwork uh, uh, trying to study nuclear weapons laboratory scientists in the town of Livermore. Uh, as a British citizen, he could, for national security reasons, and, of course, being racialized, racially marked as male and white, uh, but nonetheless, being a British citizen, he could... He could not get access into the nuclear weapons laboratory because of national security concerns. But nonetheless, what he did was to hang out in Livermore. And he stayed for as long as two years. Uh, he rented apartments with uh, lab employees. He was part of their basketball team. He spent a lot of time in their cafeteria. He, you know, all sorts of social engagements, went to the churches and whatnot. And it was through this that he was able to uh, uh, meet, interact uh, with a number of people who are who occupied different positions within this field uh, and contributed to the everyday life of the nuclear weapons laboratory and was able to reconstruct this account of what it was like to work there. Um, and similarly, Karen Ho's work on Wall Street bankers, again, a very similar uh, methodological strategy, a fieldwork strategy of hanging out. So that was actually the model I was following. Uh, though what I did do subsequently was to write a methods piece where I basically argued that that there is some that that uh, hanging out is often taken as a very you know common sense term in anthropological fieldwork, but it is possible that we can rearticulate this term uh, as a methodological technique when participant observation is limited or closed off. So basically, hanging out as a distinct technique that straddles interviews on the one hand and participant observation on the other hand. But in terms of the model I followed, I would say absolutely was profoundly shaped by the 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 the, the identity 
and the you know uncontrollable fixed aspects of the researcher but at the same time it was a it was drawn from a general model of field work that i have seen it in play especially when studying up social elites uh, one of the things while while reading the piece uh, one of the books i was thinking about was uh, deep dataray's uh, making of indian foreign policy right uh I mean, he has a similar, not a similar methodology. He immersed in himself, but basically lived with, uh, you know, uh, those sort of, uh, uh, not the diplomats, but the trainees. Uh, but essentially what happens is, uh, and his, his argument exceptionalizes these people, right, in terms of whatever, arguing that, uh, you know, they draw from Mahabharata. And there's an exceptional, exceptionalism to that that discourse, uh, which I, and sort of, I, try, I was trying to sort of, so to compare it with yours and the great thing about your piece was you don't at all in fact uh, you argue against the sense of exceptionalism of these uh, bureaucrats but there's also um, in fact you argue against both essentialism and generalism you know uh, and that was something that sort of intrigued me and that was that going to be my next question um, that while in, in your microsociological study you dismiss the notion that there's a culturally essentialist ASEAN way. In fact, you argue that these ASEAN diplomats play up that part of essentialism, but it's not essentialism. It's 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 drawn through practice. Uh, but you also argue that there's something about these practices that make them distinct from practices of other organizations such as EU, NATO, etc. So could you explain to the listeners so what makes these practices of ASEAN diplomats distinct and yet not culturally essentialist? Absolutely. This is something that I wrestled with for a great deal of time, which is that, okay, if what I'm suggesting is, is that these practices are in fact not unique, but a very distinct expression of something more general, uh, then do you run the risk of deracination, right? You're empty, you're, so you drain out the Orientalism, but what's left there? <laughs> and um, I think the answer there is, uh, I, I mean, there are, there are many ways of answering this, but I think what I do emphasize in this piece from what I remember is that I point to, so I make the case that every diplomacy will have its own sources and repertoire of face saving. It goes with the territory. In fact, in fact, many in diplomacy argue that face saving is the essence of diplomacy, right? You you manage faces, you make sure no one's embarrassed, embarrassed. Um, uh, because you're gambling with the faces to which the feelings of many are attached, as Goffman very rightly points out. A certain amount of perceptiveness goes with the territory, goes with the profession itself. Uh, but, so, so what I argue is that if fee-saving fee and the management of embarrassment is general to social interaction and indeed to diplomacy in particular, then what makes these fee-saving different from one context to the other would have to be firstly the institutional sources of fee-saving. Right. So in the case of Southeast Asia and specifically ASEAN, remember, I'm talking about ASEAN. I'm not talking about the, the, the culture of individual foreign ministries right, or individual, individual bureaucracies. There's something I'm arguing distinct about the culture of coming together and engaging in this multilateral diplomacy of 10 member states. And what's different here, therefore, is that these face-saving practices have distinct institutional sources. And these institutional sources have to do with long-standing leaderships, right, uh, conservative ruling groups, uh, as well as uh, foreign, uh, the foreign policy-making institutional setup, which has, was historically closed off from domestic scrutiny. 
thanks to the, the long arc of authoritarianism that has described ASEAN. The fact that ASEAN itself you know, was a deeply counter-revolutionary conservative and for historically mostly made up of authoritarian states. And this had a this provided the institutional milieu in which practices of face-saving, informality, uh, sending out feelers, go-betweens, clamping down on the press when they wanted to sort of criticize a particular leader or single out a particular leader. These things were possible precisely because there was a permissive institutional milieu in which face-saving practices could be uh, performed as well as institutionalized. Um, the other thing is, uh, so besides this institutional context, I think the repertoire of face-saving practices. Uh, sometimes the beauty of, I mean, the value of ethnographic work is uh, not to show how something is different entirely, but you know, the, the, it, it's in the gritty empirical detail, the minuteness of form, the expansiveness of form, the minuteness of specification, as Kaufman puts it, where you find difference. Uh, I think this is something that Terry Eagleton says about culture as well. Culture is less about what we do as opposed to how we do things. So the repertoire of practices becomes operative in trying to make a case for distinction, right? And finally, I think... Uh, very importantly, one must pay attention to the cultural discourse of these people who are doing this diplomacy. What's interesting, however, is where is this, this cultural essentialist self-orientalist? I think that's the most important thing. It's not just an orientalist discourse. This is an actively self-orientalist discourse. How are these representations being mobilized to enable, regulate, and reproduce these practices? There's a relationship between discourse and practice out here as well. And that is, I think, what's so interesting about the ASEAN diplomatic style, because that is central to what makes this different, that you actually have. So even, you know, there are scholars who have done ethnographic work and qualitative work among the Koripur in, in the EU and have pointed out that, you know, there is a very strong consensus reflex there. They're not really, the, the caricature that you find in the ASEAN literature is that the Asian way based on consensus is very different from the Western way based on legalistic procedures and voting. Uh, you know, it turns out that there is a very strong consensus reflex. There is there are you know prohibitions against embarrassing and shaming, uh, even within the Koripo as well and NATO as well. And these in, uh, diplomacies are in fact pursuing a much higher grade of security uh, cooperation than ASEAN does in terms of collective defense. And you know ASEAN is for the most part a structure of dialogue. Uh, so, so what is distinct, however, in, in this is not just the sources as well as the repertoire of practices of face-saving, but also the fact that you actually have this really remarkable, rich, self-orientalist discourse on face that is mobilized uh, to scaffold these practices and enable them. So that is how I would try and answer the question of what makes this distinct. Well, thank you so very much, Deepak. It's it's it was an incredibly educating uh, discussion, and and I learned quite a lot, and I'm sure others too. Um, so, thank you so very much again, and looking forward to reading many more award-winning pieces from you. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vinny. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and host in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.